Um, rather than uh, give you a history and experience presentation, you need louder? Okay. Sorry, I have a cold, so I'll try and <coughs> go louder. Is, is the mic on? Yeah. The other thing I'll remind you now is uh, we're getting feedback from the web that you need to repeat questions or, or comments from the crowd. Okay. Um, rather than give you a history or experience uh, presentation uh, like Serge did in the beginning, I can say our experience is very much like Princeton's. Um, same kind of exponential growth, same kind of server environment, same kind of issues. Um, I'm going to talk for a few minutes about return on investment. Um, our faculty think that Blackboard's very expensive. Um, and in the big picture, it really isn't. So we've been um, dealing with the issues of where do we go from here, whether it's OKI or not, just as Princeton uh, is doing. But we want to take a look at what is the ROI. And you know, there really isn't a payback in dollar terms, but we, we looked at all hardware, all software, all consulting and professional services costs, all direct integration costs since Blackboard was first installed uh, over five years ago over the last six fiscal years. Um, we decided to assume that we would not include indirect support costs like the help desk because it would be there anyway and it mostly answers password questions and not pedagogical questions. Uh, we also assumed that the server uh, software and infrastructure costs, which were already funded and already there for something else, would not be included uh, because they'd be there whether Blackboard was, it, was there or not. Um, our cost has been about a million to two over six years, including staffing. And we've only had about $272,000 in new costs, costs that are directly attributable to Blackboard being there. Um, we've had 3,000 courses delivered uh, over those six years, which comes out to about $417 a course. Um, how, do we how do we figure out what's a real course? We do create a course shell for every course every semester. Uh, we only count a course as real if the faculty member turns it on. We've never had a, had, very rarely does a faculty member go through the effort of turning the course on if he's not, he or she has not delivered any content. Um, we never added a single FTE to do Blackboard. We took fractions of FTEs from across the enterprise, both in the IS shop and in the pedagogical centers. Um, <clears throat> so if we exclude the staffing cost, our cost to deliver a Blackboard course in this period has been about 90 bucks. But since there are staffing costs, the truth really lies somewhere between those two figures. And of course, the, the cost per course decreases as the adoption rate increases. After our startup costs, um, our, which were the initial investment and integration costs, our annual operating cost is just under 300K a year. <clears throat> the big picture then is out of our operating and capital budgets, Blackboard or an LMS takes up a very small piece of the pie. 1.5% of our operating budget, less than 1%, far less than 1% of the college's <coughs> annual budget. What's the intangible return there, though? It's, it's a very high visibility system. There's ease of use, there's low training costs, there's a reasonable set of features, there aren't enough of them, there, there aren't, they aren't sophisticated enough, but they're out there for folks to use. Um, there's a reasonable user interface, two wrote for some, two scary for others, but really handles most of the bell curve. Uh, and we get the benefits of standard uh, authentication, 
um, and password management, uh, uniform email delivery uh, usage, and the automation, automated creation of courses for faculties to start really a semester in advance if they want to create content, and automatic enrollment for students. And there are other perspectives, the relative cost of Blackboard versus an ERP. I mean, yes, Blackboard can be expensive in the faculty view, but compare it to what we spend on PeopleSoft in a year, or what we spend on our network, or what we spend on any number of IS projects. And there have been cost avoidance. Prior to Blackboard, we basically built templates and trained faculty to deliver content by hand, or paid consultants to deliver content in, in very sophisticated environments. Clearly, the cost of, a, of an LMS uh, is efficient that way. Um, there have been benefits of, of limited portal use. There have been many collaborative partnerships both within and, and outside the institution. Um, the potential return on building blocks is something that we ha really haven't capitalized on. And given um, what Jim said earlier, maybe that's a cost avoidance that we should continue uh, to avoid. Um, this is what Michael would say is a, a GFQ, a gratuitous faculty quote, um, <clears throat> to, to go with a gratuitous architectural diagram. Um, but the important thing about it is that it's very much, Blackboard is very much on our faculty's mind. And they're actually willing to say things about it, uh, even if we you know, are not terribly thrilled about the notion of a, of a strong strategic alliance with a company. But it's a, it, we were very pleased that faculty are really um, seeing the value of a learning management system in our environment. We've seen exponential growth in the last two years. We have over 700 courses live this semester, which is double what we had two years ago. Nearly 500 faculty members uh, are delivering some content. Um, we've done a fairly simplistic and painful uh, feature usage study um, by hand. Um, Blackboard does not allow you to, to actually get these numbers in any reasonable way from the tool itself. So we paid three students to actually inspect every course, every semester, content area by content area to see what's out there. And it's interesting that <clears throat> you can see that yeah, content management is the, is the largest feature. You know, the most used uh, feature is announcements, but uh, <clears throat> document usage for syllabi and uh, external links is a lot less. And then you can see that the that the assessment engine and the online gradebook are used roughly about a, by, by a third of the faculty themselves, with uh, assessment and group features being the lowest used. Um, we have formed a Blackboard user support group, mo mostly for emotional support. Um, I'm joking, but really as a way for, uh, for faculty uh, uh, to share content and to share uh, uh, usage, uh, to, to share the, the, the pedagogical uh, use of their system with other faculty members. Um, <clears throat> okay. The LMS has provided a way for uh, a lot of inter and intra-university collaborations. Uh, We've been very successful on the technology aspect of, of having a broad range of people from different organizations involved. Um, from the support perspective, we have our Center for uh, New Designs and Learning and Scholarship as the primary pedagogical uh, support organization. The libraries are increasingly becoming more uh, involved in that. And as a, a partnership with our other Jesuit schools uh, through a, a, a Learning Anywhere Anytime grant project, 
Um, we've developed some distance education courses and some really some cross-institutional courses that are delivered through our Blackboard environment. Um, as far as future goals on our campus, we want to increase the number of faculty who return uh, to deliver content. We did see over the last three or four years faculty members who would deliver content for a semester and then stop and then come back. And we really haven't determined whether that's because of the way they teach or because of their experience with the system. And we want to really force or foster some increased pedagogical depth in the courses. A lot of our courses, to be honest with you, are very basic. They have a syllabus. They have some links. They've got office hours. But they don't have real exciting or sexy content. Now, there are exceptions to that rule. There are numerous courses where large lecture classes actually force the class to have group interactions in much smaller cases. There are the history of jazz class where there are over three gigabytes of content uh, and, and 300 um, uh, jazz clips where the, where the students actually have to listen to the clip before or clips before the lecture is given. And then some, uh, some pre uh, and post uh, lecture assessments that are, are done in, in that course. And of course, we're, we're really interested in, in pushing the product uh, beyond its current uh, limits. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. Really briefly, um, we have a whole uh, treasure trove of current issues. Um, our ability to deploy Blackboard 6, or even our desire to do so, um, is sort of tied up in where does Blackboard fit into um, <clears throat> what the IS organization can be, can be doing that sort of goes to the decentralized ownership and control issues. There really isn't a single, a single person or, or unit to spearhead where we're going. Um, we're, we're not going to go to Blackboard 6 in the fall, um, partially because of staffing uh, issues, partially because of server uh, demand issues. Um, we have an e-reserve crisis right now. Um, our e-reserve uh, system, frankly, is um, not fully in compliance with the law. And our librarians and technologists have been trying to find a way to get the e-reserve um, <clears throat> matter uh, worked out. Blackboard is a possible solution, but there are multiple solution sets that have um, <clears throat> different price points. Uh, none of which are acceptable, and the, the lower price points are, are really technologically uh, infeasible. Um, but uh, I want to talk to you, I'll talk in a second about how we, we're going to proceed on that. Um, we do have some portal issues. Um, we have the uh, LMS and portal product sort of rolled into one right now. Blackboard split them out as, as separate products, but from our perspective, they're still the same, the same product. Uh, and we are a transaction system user, and they're trying to meld the transaction system content. The online card office will be part of the portal solution. So you're really going to be locked into using it for one thing or another, uh, whether you want to or not. Um, we have been, we have, and other schools have been working with Blackboard to play in the I2 middleware space. Um, I'll talk about that in just a second or two. Um, <clears throat> And we also have been grappling with this issue, to what extent do we maintain our partnership with Blackboard? We've had a really strong partnership with them. We were originally a beta partner on the, on the Blackboard 5 implementation. Um, we have uh, licensed all of their products. And they're actually coming to us to, to talk about maybe becoming a beta partner on a, on a fourth product. And um, 
I can talk about that in a second, too. And then the, the biggest issue for us, and I, and I put it at the bottom of the slide sort of to, to point out its irony, the biggest issue for us is how does Blackboard really affect teaching and learning? And, and that's the, 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 the question that most of the faculty and that most uh, of the pedagogical support uh, unit grapple with every day. And there are, there are no easy answers there. And when we get to the tools section this afternoon, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, Marge Knox and I um, are double agents. We're both me members of CSG schools, and we're both on the product advisory board. So we sort of, um, at Blackboard, and we sort of um, use that to, to, to share information back to you without breaking non-disclosure, of course. Um, so I want to give uh, maybe a two-minute summary of where Bl Blackboard really is. Um, <clears throat> they're profitable. That means they're, they're turning, for the first time in their history, they're turning uh, a marginal profit. That's good news for some, not so good news for others. Um, they delivered a product, Blackboard 6.0, um, last summer. Uh, it's really nice on paper. It provides lots of features and enhancements to Blackboard 5 that we've wanted. Um, but like Blackboard 5X, it's a disaster um, from a rollout perspective, from a quality assurance perspective, from a customer satisfaction perspective. Um, 6X was delivered uh, late summer. 100 schools went live with it in the fall. 100 schools were sorely disappointed with it. Um, there was great gnashing of teeth at the Blackboard Users Conference in February and a very apologetic uh, vendor. Um, they are going to release a major patch to 6X this summer. Um, they need to because any school... Um, would be crazy to implement 6.0 in production without that patch. Um, it's imminent. Um, I'm still waiting for it to come. I'll be anxious to, to see when it does come. Um, Blackboard is starting to play in the OKI sandbox. As someone mentioned before, uh, we really don't know what that means. Um, Jeff uh, uh, presented with Chrissy Tess uh, last year in Phoenix that um, Blackboard and OKI were at least talking. Um, Blackboard really would like to become a foundation service for OKI and to see its building blocks APIs uh, migrate into OKI compliant APIs. Um, but that <clears throat> really is an open issue and we need to see how that goes. I think we all want to see it go that way, but it's not clear that it will. Um, since we last talked about Blackboard in a CSG context, there have been uh, the formation of the Blackboard Developers Network, as was alluded to earlier. It is a way for uh, single uh, developers, schools, open source consortia, or vendors to get access to specialized tools and documentation um, and uh, an uh, a, a, a certification process uh, for, for building block compliant code. Building blocks are uh, software modules that can snap into a Blackboard environment and work. Um, it's obvious that the four uh, schools that developed code and got uh, cease and desist orders and paid up some cash didn't certify their applications as being building block compliant. Um, I think that's uh, uh, being somewhat facetious, but I, I think it's, um, it's a real issue, and I, I hope Jim can talk about it a little later. Serge? Okay. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the big issue was the transaction system. Okay. Uh, I did want to make sure that people knew about it, and 
information about both um, BBDN and building blocks are, are available on the, the blackboard.com site. Um, <clears throat> as far as Shibboleth goes, uh, Blackboard has uh, worked with a number of us to, to shibbolize the product. Um, they, they've, they've done a little talk. They've done a little work. Um, they've gotten the authentication piece done but not the authorization piece or the directory-driven piece or the how you work out the licensing issues to add new users from foreign sites. I mean, our license says that we, we can have an unlimited number of Georgetown users. Suppose we have a researcher from Stanford log in using Shibboleth. Does that user count? N nothing going there. No, nothing on the intellectual property issue that Michael mentioned earlier where if something attaches to the product, they have rights to it. Um, our contract still says that they do. I've told them that that's nice, but we're, you know, that's not how it's going to work. Um, uh, there was a demo at the I2 meeting last week or last month in in Arlington. Uh, Michael, do you want to say anything about that? Or I will. Oh, okay, great. Um, just a few uh, final points. As we heard, Mike, uh, Blackboard has. <coughs> Did buy Prometheus. Um, I think they're 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 looking to buy companies whenever possible. They did buy the transaction system from AT and T. I think they lost some focus when they did that. Um, I think they're starting to get it back, especially since they're they're pushing the uh, going to, to a much more uh, vertical organization for the company. It was used to be uh, very uh, I'm sorry, much more horizontal um, uh, focus. It used to be really practically two companies in one. You'd ask a question in Phoenix, you'd get an answer. You'd ask it in Washington, you'd get a different answer. I think they're, they're seeing that they really can't play that game. Um, <clears throat> I think they're looking to buy more. Um, uh, they, they haven't said that outright, but my gut tells me they really want to build content management partnerships or buy a content management company. They really want to get an e-portfolio into the product because they see the the, almost the addictive nature of, of, of bringing that type of product into Blackboard. And they really want to you know, work on the ERES issues as well. Uh, and then finally, I'll, uh, I'll uh, mention what, uh, uh, what Dirk said earlier. Uh, Microsoft to the max, I just don't see it. I know there was a lot of angst a year and a half ago when Microsoft put a lot of money into the company um, where we were talking about the Microsoftization of Blackboard. That really isn't the case. Um, I think they're, they're staying really true to their Unix customers. There hasn't been any featured, major loss of features in the, in the current release. I don't see it in the next release. Um, in some ways, that's very encouraging. And um, um, we'll leave it at that. Any questions? Carl? Um, uh, <clears throat> Carl asked uh, that Black, uh, Blackboard uh, has the propensity to buy things. Do, uh, do I think that Blackboard would buy things, uh, buy open source products, uh, and share them uh, uh, with the with the community, or would they roll them into the existing product? Um, I think they're looking for. Um, they're not look, they're not look, they're not the Borg. I don't think they're looking to subsume. I think they are. They're they're becoming much more business minded, and would probably want to sell standalone products to the extent that they can. Um, 
I, I, I don't see, I don't see them uh, I, I don't see them being the monolith they used to be. Serge. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, but the real issue is the support. How do you how do you how do you manage the memberships? Um, we we. Uh, we will grant an organization to anybody who asks for one, but we don't publish the fact that we'll do that. It's sort of word of mouth. Word of mouth. We might have 50 out there. Um, we had an alumni organization actually ask us recently if we'd host a Blackboard site. We told them no because of the we'd have to start, you know, <clears throat> adding 130,000 alumni to our Blackboard database, and we, we didn't really want to get into that issue. But I think I think that day is going to come. And if we had a shibboleth environment that didn't rely on a proprietary back-end database for authorization, that might be a lot more practical. And, and I think we're at least starting to talk to them about that issue. So, okay. Thanks, everyone. All right, let's... Well, we are uh, more than 15 minutes late, and Jim, this time it's not my fault. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think the, the presentations that you heard actually set the stage very well for this next set of presentations. Uh, uh, Frank's comments from the survey, this is not the story about your mother-in-law, but when you're talking about the, the propensity towards uh, uh, looking at standards and looking at OKI, etc., uh, actually set the stage, as do Dirk's comments and Annie's uh, comments about scale when she was talking about risk counseling. Uh, integration, interoperability, and boundary issues uh, or what we are going to talk about uh, in the next series of presentations. And I was thinking what these are really about is moving from what you just heard, which is a lot about learning management systems, to learning technology services. And I'm going to qualify. And you heard some of those dimensions of uh, services. And I'll just uh, give some qualifications to the services. One is uh, that they are useful services, useful in the sense that uh, they serve a variety of educational ends. You know, we've all asserted that educational technology value is derived in different ways by different people. The physicians do it differently, the mathematicians do it differently, and that's good. And we want to be able to serve these varied needs efficiently. So that's one qualification for the services. The second thing is the enterprise orientation of these services, which has not only got to do with scale, the kind of scale, thousands of users that Annie and Dirk referred to, but also in terms of how learning technology systems, applications, touch other adjacent systems and, and integrate with them, whether it is uh, student information systems or library catalogs and uh, financial systems, what have you. So that enterprise orientation. And the third uh, qualification, which is a favorite of mine, is the sustainability attribute, which is that uh, for these services, to be sustainable, they have to last over time, over variations in technology. In fact, uh, they should be able to take advantage of technology, whether it's in terms of infrastructure services or choices that we make in terms of applications, and not be disruptive in terms of the higher level value that's being, uh, that's being derived by users. So those are the qualifications for services. We have uh, four people, and basically the presentations, again, when I, when I uh, uh, step back and abstract, there are two streams. Uh, things that talk with, about technical interoperability, which has, you know, and authentication, authorization, what are the strategies, solutions that people are uh, employing, uh, and 
and another stream which has to do with organizational interoperability. Given, as you've heard, that these systems, uh, various agencies are involved, the libraries are involved, uh, academic computing is involved, uh, central IT is involved in uh, uh, what OCW at MIT pointed out is uh, just everyone from the, uh, from the technology licensing office uh, to the help desk is involved in delivering ultimate value. And uh, so the organizational interoperability question has to do with how do these agencies coordinate their work, how do they manage handoffs, and in some cases, uh, how are we dealing with uh, larger things like policy, which, which uh, sort of go across these. Uh, and when you talk about policy, there are new things like teach, and how are they being addressed, who takes ownership for this. So these are the kinds of issues that you'll hear about in the next sessions. We have Ed Karras from, uh, from uh, Yale, who will be talking about authentication authorization strategies, uh, followed by Dirk, who will say even more than he has uh, about what's going on. And uh, uh, then there's a toss-up between Phil and Brad Wheeler, whom some of you might not know from Indiana University. So that's the order. So Ed, can we? My colleagues at home, uh, Pam, Gloria, Andy, Mary, if you can watch me and then uh, get back to work, please. Um, oh, really? Thank you. All right. Um, I'm, I'm going to tell, I'm going to shock my colleagues and and sorry. Uh, I'm going to shock my colleagues and talk very, very quickly and briefly and make up some of the 15 minutes that we're, uh, that we're behind on. Uh, at Yale, we've uh, developed our own course management system called classes.yale.edu uh, that's uh, currently in use by uh, uh, a, a significant fraction of, of, of courses at Yale, uh, uh, over 700, and probably close to about 90% of our faculty in, in, in one form or another. That's really cool. Thank you. Um, um, I, just to pick up on something that Vijay said, it's, it's really is about service. You can have the greatest course management software in the world, but if you don't have a group that really supports it, that listens to faculty, that responds to their needs, uh, it, it's, it's, it's really not going to be effective in the learning environment. So we've, to, to the extent that we've had any success with our course management system, I think it's largely because we've been uh, partnering with faculty. Uh, we listen to them, what do you need uh, to deliver material in the classroom, outside of the classroom, and we either integrate that into our course management system or we try to figure out some other solution for doing it. So uh, that's been our strategy, fairly successful, and I think we're going we're to continue with that. Um, the topic of this is integration. I'll give you a quick overview of, of how uh, our system is integrated. It's, uh, it's an application server and, and, and a database. It, <coughs> the database gets a lot of its information from our, our banner system, which is managed by, the, uh, by our registrar's office. So uh, you know, there's, there's daily updates about who's registered in what course and so on. Uh, in classes, it actually returns the, uh, 
favor. And we have a system called online course information where students can go to uh, basically one of the, a banner application and say, okay, you know, who's teaching what course, when do they meet, and so on. And if that course actually happens to have some material on the course management system, uh, it, it, they can link to it directly. So in the process of sort of shopping for courses and selecting for courses, they can also see what is in fact available, uh, what, what faculty have put something up. Uh, we have an LDAP server that delivers some data to our system in terms of email addresses and, uh, and first names and last names, that kind of thing. Uh, we have this thing called a people file, which again delivers additional sort of uh, people, people file, people's net IDs, their email addresses. Uh, and so on, so that the class's database uh, gets that information. Uh, <clears throat> the people file is, in fact, this conglomeration of, of data sources, which is, which is supplied to a number of on-campus applications. Uh, we also have a photo ID database. Everyone's got a Yelp ID with a little photo on it. And <clears throat> uh, a recent development is that uh, instructors can now uh, see the pictures of, of everyone that's enrolled in their course. And this has been uh, a great success, as I'm sure many of you have found at your uh, institutions. The to see, associate a name with a face is very valuable. Uh, our authentication uh, currently is based on, on Kerberos, so we use our sort of central Kerberos uh, authentication system, although, um, and so you log into the application by providing your, your net ID and password. Uh, for, uh, we're in the process of migrating that to uh, a fairly new system at Yale called the Central Authentication Service, uh, which many other applications use, so that once you log into one application, your credentials can be passed on to other applications that participate, that also use uh, uh, the so-called CAS system. So we're looking forward to that, and that will also help us with our portal integration, which I'll talk about in a second. Uh, there's other things associated with our course management system, including a media server where we have uh, uh, streaming audio, streaming video, uh, image collections, and so on. And right now, that's largely a standalone application, but we're looking to uh, provide tighter integration with, uh, with, with our, our classes server in the future. And we're also, uh, uh, we'll be launching, we're currently piloting a threaded discussion server based on, on the Jive technology, which again will communicate with the classes database and so to figure out who's enrolled in what course, who should be in which forum, and also give the instructors some control over uh, what, uh, what kind of functions different forum members can, uh, can have. So we're looking forward to going with that um, in production in the fall. Uh, and this is just a little appendage that our, our, our new uh, authentication system, which will be uh, in place shortly. Uh, some of the integration challenges that we face are synchronization with Banner. Our Banner system is run by our, 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 our SFAS group, Student Financial Administrative Systems, and the Registrar's Office. And there's a couple of really thorny issues associated with synchronizing with Banner. One is the so-called course selection period, or as we call it, the shopping period. During the first sort of two and a half weeks of every semester, students don't officially register in a course. Uh, they, uh, they can shop courses. They come to the first five minutes of one class, go to another one, and so on. Many, many of you have this. Um, a similar system. Some of our faculty love it, others hate it. Uh, but it means that there's this critical period at the beginning of the semester where you don't actually know who's registered in your course. So classes allows you to kind of currently uh, subscribe to a course, and when the official registration lists become available, our instructors can see that on classes. Um, but it still uh, gives us with this kind of, uh, uh, leaves us in this uneasy situation where for the first two and a half weeks, if you, there's some materials you want to uh, provide only to the students that are, that are registered or will be registered. Uh, there's some uncertainty about that. 
Uh, Cross-listed courses are also a royal pain because there, 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 there will be courses that have five or more titles spread across departments with different instructors and so on. But obviously, there's one single course and therefore need one uh, canonical source of information. So we're, we're in the process of redesigning some of our database structure to help uh, uh, facilitate that. Um, of course, this is also uh, um, uh, very dynamic. Two courses might uh, initially appear as, uh, as different courses in the Bannard system. Then somebody corrects the error, they become cross-listed, and we have to manage that synchronization in, in classes. Uh, this notion of persistent courses, there's, there's some faculty who really insist, look, I teach um, uh, Chinese 200 every single year, and I just want a space for Chinese 200 to be there all the time. I don't want it associated with a particular semester or, or, or so on. Uh, similarly with archive issues. Um, um, you know, there's a, a, a bunch of material that one or more instructors will use that, that extends across time and stays fairly static. They don't want to be uh, restricted to, well, there's something that happened in fall of 2000, something else that happened in fall of 2001. They want kind of a, um, a, a persistent area. Um, Crossing course boundaries uh, uh, is, is also an issue, so that there might be a group of instructors in English, for example, that are, all share a common set of materials, and they want access to that common set of materials, but then somehow disseminate it uh, idiosyncratically to the different courses that they're teaching. And we don't want to provide them with a separate system for this. We want them to have an integrated environment where they can, uh, where they can communicate with each other and then extract information to the different courses. And we have some somewhat kludgy methods for doing that now, but we hope to to improve that in the future. Um, the, the, the challenge of identifying who, who's actually who and who has what role is, is, is a very difficult one. Currently in our, in our course management system, you're either a student or an instructor. Um, and you can also be sort of the official instructor of record, or I can make you an instructor and give you some instructor, instructor privileges. And so some of that doesn't always synchronize with Banner. Somebody might come along who's not actually listed as the official instructor of a course, but they still need instructor privileges for some reason. So immediately we break some synchronization with our Banner system. There's uh, other areas where, for example, the DUS of a department, the director of undergraduate studies, might want access to all of the courses in, in his or her department because they want to view the syllabi, they perhaps want to participate in the course in some way. We don't really have good data on who is actually the DUS of a department or who is the chair of a department. Uh, someone in the dean's office recently uh, you know, lamented to me that at any instant of time, he can't actually tell you who is the chair of a department with any, uh, any degree of, 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 uh, uh, of authority. So needless to say, that, that puts us in, 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 in a difficult role. Um, uh, and then finally, we're launching a student portal in, in, in the fall. And <clears throat> classes has been this kind of standalone application. But we're, now we're looking to the portal to provide sort of an integrated uh, uh, entry to a lot of applications that are of interest to students. So we'll be faced with the challenges of, OK, you might authenticate to the portal, and your credentials we pa will be passed on to these different applications, including classes. But now, how do you, how do you enter into, in, into a course? Traditionally, you've logged into the course management system. You've selected which course you want to look at. And you go, and you find that material and, and, and interact with the course. With, uh, with uh, uh, the portal gives us new opportunities. So you log into the portal and you can see that there's something new in Anthropology 254A and you can dive right very deeply into the application and access only the most current material or the material you're, you're, you're particularly interested in. So it offers new opportunities for students to, to access uh, the course content, but it provides us with challenges again of how to, how to actually provide, uh, do that with our existing application. Uh, second set of challenges are 
how do we integrate with other applications that students use? We, we, we sometimes forget that students do things other than, you know, use your course management system. And we've developed a, a number of, uh, of applications at Yale that, that all start with online course something or other. Uh, course information is a quick way for viewing what courses are being offered where they meet. Online course selection is, is what students use to actually identify the courses they're going to register for and electronically register for them. And at the end of the course, there's an online course evaluation system. So these currently are all separate applications that you go to different places to do this. And um, we'd really like to keep to a minimum the number of things that students and faculty have to remember to go to, different URLs, different places, and really kind of integrate them. The portal might help in this, in this respect, but that's still behind the portal. We have to make them all fit together. Um, the student Facebook is another one where there's a standalone student Facebook where students can see, uh, you know, uh, the, the photo IDs of other students in their college. Um, and we're also working on a, on a, on a campus-wide calendaring application that, again, we'll, we will want to integrate with our course management system. Uh, faculty, typically, they use email and, and maybe the course management system. But now we're also developing other applications for faculty, including an online course proposal. I was shocked to learn how many new courses are proposed every year at Yale. I thought it was dozens, but it's actually hundreds, and it's been done with a traditional paper method. Now that's going to be electronic. And again, it would be nice if, if faculty do, could do one-stop shopping for that and just go to one place that's already associated with their coursework to propose a new course. And similarly, um, we're in the uh, first semester of, of true across-the-board online course evaluation where students do end-of-semester evaluation of courses online, and faculty will have the ability to go online and view their online course evaluations. And uh, at the moment, that's going to be a separate application. But again, we look forward to integrating that with uh, the same place that faculty go to do other course-related things. And this is my last slide. Um, I, I'm a big fan of having a really easy-to-use file system. And uh, we're really good at, at building multiple, multiple, multiple file systems. So right now, the classes server gives you file space for your courses. Uh, we have research servers. We have departmental servers. We have spaces for your personal files. We have spaces where you can put your media. Uh, fortunately, most of them use the same login. But as a faculty member, you don't you know, you don't take off one hat and put on another one in serially. You wear multiple hats at the same time. You often bring material from your research enterprise, from your scholarship into class, and vice versa. You take things that you've collected uh, in your personal space or within the departmental activities and bring them into, into your coursework as well. So I'd really like to see us think about how we can sort of pull, let faculty easily pull all this material together, whether they use it for research or for, or for teaching. And then finally, the 800-pound the gorilla is our interaction with the library, where we've um, really made a serious effort to work with the library to make scholarly resources available to, to, to faculty um, in, in, a, in a concerted way. A big one, obviously, is, as many of you have already discussed, are electronic journals. We have, we have a huge collection of electronic journals that currently faculty must access independently outside of the course, uh, out of the course management system. They can certainly take a persistent URL and paste it into a web page on their, on their, on their course web page, uh, or they could link to something, or in the worst case, they actually just make an electronic copy of, some, of an electronic uh, article and stick it into their course management system. But we'd like that to be much more seamless uh, uh, so that they, uh, again, students access this from just one place. And media collections are the final point that we're really working on. And I've categorized these as sort of ranging from personal collections. You know, I have a collection of 350 35-millimeter slides that I, that I use in my history of art course. Um, 
or, or I have my, my collection of uh, you know, uh, nine-legged insects that I use in my research. Uh, I might, there might be a departmental or a laboratory-wide collection of, art, of anthropolog uh, archaeological artifacts or, or, or some other things that I share with many colleagues. And finally, there are institutional uh, collections, such as uh, you know, extensive uh, tens of thousands of digitized images from uh, libraries, uh, 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 art galleries, and so on. And what we're really struggling with now is how to sort of make all of these accessible in, a, in the same kind of way to faculty for instructional use. So it's fairly easy for us to support personal and, and teaching collections. You know, we build a custom application or a little uh, off-the-shelf uh, database or, or asset management system, train faculty how to use it. They can make web pages, link to it, and so on, collaborate. Um, <clears throat> but for larger-scale collections that are, that are drawn from, uh, from institutional sources, uh, they have to go there, they have to collect them, they have to download them to the, to the course management system and so on. So it's a bit clumsy. And if you have, and, and if you have sources from multiple collections, you really have to do a, a bit of juggling to make it work really seamlessly. So um, one of our challenges, uh, again, in the future will be to think about how we can really sort of make one-stop shopping for faculty uh, in, in preparing their, um, their coursework. So that's it. Thanks. Any questions? Okay, get back to work, guys. <laughs> So um, I'm, I'm going to actually talk about some integration issues that, as they pertain to what we're doing both now and into the Desire to Learn project. And as a refresher, I've put this uh, diagram which came out of our RFP process, uh, mostly to show there's a lot of stuff going on, but also to, to oh, here, I can use it, uh, to sort of think about the boundary issues because uh, what's what's in the system what's outside the system I think that's something that's confusing us okay uh, our current integrations and I'm going to talk about WebCT on the Madison campus here uh, we we have these areas uh, the LDAP so that we can get the username passwords that that is a real-time connection um, and then we update our user accounts on a daily basis. And you might wonder why those are two separate things, but they are two separate things. Um, daily course rosters, which are actually coming from the data warehouse as opposed to directly to PeopleSoft, but it's the same data. Um, another thing that we've found very valuable is uh, the optically scanned test uh, which is a service that's been forever on our campus, and I bet every single uh, one of you out there has a service like that on your campus. We take get that data, we bring it into WebCT. We don't actually put it in the gradebook, but we put it in a format that can easily be imported. The main thing we're getting in there is matching up the user credentials. Uh, the testing service just gets their campus ID, but uh, we need to match that up with their username. Uh, 
portal, uh, single sign-on integration, and, and actually we've got links to all the WebCT courses. Um, so you can click, it'll honor the sign-on that happened earlier. Um, and then grade submission um, uh, to, the, to the registrar. Okay, those are the things we're doing now. The things we're hoping to get done by uh, fall 04, that's another year out, includes all the things we're doing now uh, plus course creation so that we can create all the courses, whether they're actually being used directly or not. We see that as a level of service and an ease of use kind of an issue, not, not so much to raise our counts. Um, and then uh, re near real-time update of the course rosters um, so that when we're in the drop-add period, uh, people don't have to wait a day. Uh, library e-reserves, um, and we're hoping to see SCORM 1.3. They're currently on 1.2 for content integration. Um, and that also points out that integrating content and what that means is another horizon. Two weeks. Oh, reasonable time. Oh, I think I think people have the expectation that when they go to our web-based uh, place to change the course they're in, that then they want to be able to go into their web course space now. <laughs> I mean, five minutes is is going to be the user tolerance there. Could they wait an hour? Maybe. Uh, but a day, we, we've seen a lot of complaints on that. And, and a day at that point may, may be a big deal to them in the course of their class. As fast as we think we can get the technology to work, and it is a technology issue. Okay. Um, some more plans. I'm just going to throw a shopping list at you. Uh, this first one is system-wide. Uh, IAA, Identity Authentication and Authorization. Um, and what that'll buy us is a unique username or identity across the entire UW. Okay. And uh, I'm putting it out another year because we're not, I'm not sure it's going to happen fast enough to make uh, follow for. Uh, we are looking at DSpace right now. That's a pilot project. Um, if that goes uh, production, then uh, it would be in this time frame. That's something our library is uh, putting up. Um, the MyUW Madison portal and a, and a fuller integration with that. And there's some interplay there between a portal view and a top-level uh, view within a course management system. They may actually be the same thing, <laughs> and it's where you want to portray it. Uh, we'd like to get roles from our student information system, uh, instructor probably being the main one there. Uh, we already know who the students are, uh, but TAs would be another one. And uh, on our campus, anyways, that'll, that'll be uh, an interesting discussion about how we correctly identify those. And we're taking that work on right now of an instructor role definition. Uh, email lists, we actually have an external email uh, list service. We're wondering if we can actually get that within the product. Uh, synchronization with an enterprise calendar. Uh, these systems seem to be uh, creators of calendar events, and can they get into my enterprise calendar? 
Uh, shibboleth would be another thing we'd see happening in this time frame. And then some things dealing with streaming media and something called IPTV, which we're trying to put up on campus here. That's a Cisco product uh, for the Madison campus anyways. And these, these things also relate to our, our upgrade of our network infrastructure, uh, which is causing Annie all sorts of fun right now <laughs> in discussing. Uh, but we, these are some of the things uh, we, we think may use that and auth authentication, the authen integration is, is a big deal there. Uh, Ken? Yeah, do you see the same problems in policy space with desire to learn and remote authentication a la shibboleth that uh, Charlie was talking about with Blackboard? You mean in terms of working with the company or in terms of our internal? structures and whether or not you They seem to be a lot more flexible on, on licensing and not, not so hardline on it. Um, but we'll see as we as we get into that. But they uh, and maybe they haven't thought about that hard enough within their business model. Um, but but it'll still be a challenge regardless. And uh, we are site licensing this for all UW. So so everybody who's a student or staff would already have a license. Uh, I, I but we'll see how the, how that plays out. So that's a that's a fair sized issue though when you think about it that way and as a as a research institution we would expect to see you know a lot of things happening at that level. Um, I'm going to ask questions about content management. This this was one of those emergent issues in the RFP process where I thought it was important going in and then it ended up being even more important as we got into it and. I'm, I, I have more questions than answers, quite frankly, about what this thing is and where it fits, and is it within these products? Is it a second product? We've got people talking about LCMS, learning content management systems. When I've looked at the product brochures of those things, I'm going, gee, that looks like a content management system. And then they slapped an L in front of it. Um, What's the relationship to the library and e-resources they're putting up there, the licensed resources? Um, and then you get right smack into uh, digital rights management, which is a, both a technology uh, horizon as well as all sorts of fun policy issues, our own institutional IP rights policy, how this intersects with authoring tools and workflow, um, and I, I just see all sorts of blurry boundaries here. Um, we, we've actually got a project we're just going to fire up internally within our architecture group to take a good hard look at content management um, on its own. Um, another horizon here are external tools, uh, some of which I, I know I've heard talked about here, some of which we see on our own campus. Uh, some of them are happening out there, uh, not within our central IT, and people are using uh, all sorts of things, not just uh, Microsoft ASP technology, which might bolt up to desire to learn. But whether it's the Microsoft technology or J2EE or something else, there, there's sort of a, seems to be a technology disconnect to me. And uh, how, how are we going to deal with these things? I'm, I'm actually kind of irritated right now that we haven't figured out how to bring in PHP, 
because I see a whole lot of energy behind that as an example. Um, generally, there's a need for authentication, authentic integration here. Um, then we've got a couple of tools that we've been playing with ourselves that come out of some big projects. Something I, we call our tracking and reporting system, which has a SCORM runtime, and a, a lesson builder, which can uh, spew out uh, standards compliant content, which will run in a, uh, our tracking and reporting system, but we're also hoping it would run in desire to learn. Another thing I, I want to throw out here is just straight websites and how they fit in. And there's this product from Macromedia called Contribute. Um, that is supposed to give people an easy way to update the content that's on the web. OK, how about integrating that into one of these? Why, I mean, it's a web-based product. Why, why not? Um, my, my final thought here, kind of a provocative question here is, um, again, asking what the heck are we, what have we got here? Are, are we talking about standalone applications or are we talking about distributed services? And where are the boundaries here? Um, I, I think the disruptive factor here is distributed computing itself. When we talked about computing on a single processor, time sharing, the world was simpler. <laughs> We've got distributed computing, multiple CPUs, servers, desktops, clients, and I, I think we're still trying to come to grips with that technology, quite frankly. Um, I'll also ask about the hidden costs of integrated applications. Um, there was some interesting articles in InfoWorld earlier this year which uh, talked about that, and they were looking at ERP systems. Um, but when, it's easy to get into an integrated application that you buy off the shelf, but over time, uh, are there going to be more costs that will catch up with you? Um, and then I, I sort of have a, a, a question whether we're going to have to migrate again in five years. We, we did this RFP process thinking of a five-year time horizon. We, we think we're we're going to be set within that time period. I mean, who knows if the vendor will go under, but probably not. But at the end of the five years, are we going to do this all over again? Are, are, are we going to be faced with the same issues? And I don't know. <laughs> OK, questions? Serge. There you go. Departmental, that's right. Yep. Right. Yep. Yep. I very much agree. <laughs> and that's part of distributed computing, too. Yeah. More thoughts or comments? Okay, well, maybe we'll move on. Thanks a lot.
See if I can get us back to the same resolution that we were before. Um, okay, am I on? Um, I'm Phil Long, the other Phil Long from MIT. Um, we'll exchange mail about people that we mutually know but don't know um, in a little bit. Uh, um, I'm going to remind us about uh, the uh, integration, interoperability, and boundary issues that uh, that Vijay started to frame this with just by quickly running through uh, the slides that he was going to show at the beginning. Um, his comment, I think, about turning from LMSs as a product to a, a list of sustainable enterprise services is really, I think, the theme. I, Oren, you made a comment uh, in an email exchange in preparation for this meeting about um, the, the where the LMS term came from, and it probably came from a marketing department in a, in a company, and, um, and whether or not that's been a disservice because of the, um, the easy sort of, but, but in some sense mistaken uh, buy-in that people who are thinking about these tools, uh, faculty and technologists alike, um, the constraints that go with that has, has caused us a lot of grief. And those of us that have rich environments with lots of interesting tools find ourselves trying to figure out how we can make these interesting tools appear as a learning management system according to some marketing definition. Um, there are considerations we've talked about, which is the technology uh, considerations, authorization, authentication, et cetera, as well as enterprise integration uh, to the external systems that these tools have to talk with. And then there's finally the issue of tool portability, ability to drag something from somebody else's developed, uh, development shop or some other institution and pop it in without having to do a whole lot to make it work in our local environments. Um, and then there are the uh, boundary issues, which are largely human resource or human organization issues uh, with respect to multiple agencies and their policies working together to support all of this stuff. Um, so I'm going to quickly go from that to my presentation. And I'm going, obviously, in, in front of Brad because I didn't want to be between you and lunch. Um, so I'll take that as a, as in the beginning. Um, so I'm going to briefly show some of the integration issues with respect to MIT's stellar environment just as a means of illustrating them, um, talking first about authentication and authorization. And this shows in some extent in stellar that, that when you begin to get into the stellar system, uh, you may have a username and password because uh, you may be known by no other system and need one specifically to get into, into the learning tools. Um, there may be nothing in front of the learning tool and the, the outside world. It may be just public access. Or uh, it may be, in fact, that you're a member of the MIT community, and therefore there's a 509 certificate uh, that you can use and that the system will recognize if it's presented with it and then grant you access accordingly. On the authorization side of things, um, things, things can be, again, made available to the world without uh, further ado, they can be made available to the users of the system or they can be made available to users of the class. Those were the initial cuts at authorization and access that, uh, that Stellar embodies. And we quickly got um, the information from our, from our user community that they want much greater granularity than that. 
uh, the ability to turn off and on various particular items and objects um, to collections of people, whether that's teams or whether that's um, uh, so that groups of students working on projects can see only the group work that they're doing and not others, or whether that's IP-related issues, intellectual property issues about what the distribution access of a particular object might be. So we have to begin thinking about how we extend the granularity of that authorization within the tools. And of course, then there's access to uh, the catalog information. We've talked a lot about this. In our case, you're looking at a Stellar homepage, and um, you see this raft of stuff here that's circled by the box. Uh, it's not really that critical to read it entirely, except so far to say that it is the course title, the faculty of record, the TAs for the course, and the course description, all of which should be coming out of the course catalog. And then, oops, hold on. And then um, the student information system needs to be supplying information directly to the, uh, to the, in the course environment. This happens to be a class list. It's a live class list, so I've blocked off the names and the... Uh, and the usernames, but these names and usernames are being derived from um, the student information system. And of course, that's student name, email address, and the faculty of record for the course. And there's a staff list correspondingly to that that also needs to be drawn off that, inf that, that information and is integrated in. Now, this is done in our case at the beginning of the semester and is not dynamic. Um, it is the, tool, the faculty member or individuals with control of the course have the opportunity to go in and modify this at their leisure at any point that they wish if there's new people that pop in and out, and that's our way of dealing with that shopping period, which I think at MIT must last forever, about six weeks or something like that. Um, integration into library tools is another area that we have to deal with, and in Stellar we have an e-reserves system, um, which is a place where the library items for the, uh, from the library-owned databases pops in, or faculty can put it in themselves and call it e-reserves and make it available and restricted in that fashion. And then there's the intellectual property issues around uh, all of this stuff, uh, the TCHAC being a primary concern. TCHAC has an interesting statement in part of it, which is that the works um, need, to, need to be available in amount and duration comparable to that which are displayed or performed in a live physical classroom setting. It's, so interpreting that is uh, an issue at the moment for online objects. And secondly, that software tools provided by the university to limit access to the works of students enrolled in the course need to prevent downstream copying by those students and prevent students from retaining the works longer than the class session. And so there is obviously an interesting discussion about, well, what the heck is the class session? Um, some people have said it's the 50 minutes that the class is taught in the particular room that it's being taught in. And others are saying that, no, the class session is the time they enroll in the institution to the time that they have become alumni and pass on. And some way in the middle is probably where the answer is. This happens to be the NCSU um, TCHAC website, which, is, if you're not familiar with it, is particularly rich in following this information. All I can tell you is that I know that our legal counsel at MIT has indicated that we do not want to be the poster child for decisions about refining this particular set of discussions. On the tool portability front, um, we all know that achieving this enterprise integration doesn't speak at all to the question of tool portability, and that's an, old, an, an entirely different topic. Um, you might want to talk with Craig Counterman, who's here, uh, was here, here's here, and, uh, and Brad, um, it's someone in Indiana as well, uh, and, and in Michigan, um, Chuck Severns, 
who are talking about this issue of tool portability from um, the web perspective, at least. We all know that interoperability of tools is hard. That's one of those Journal of Duh headlines. Um, but in thinking about it, it's a, we need to look at the different components of the layers that affect the tool's behavior. And in the OKI world, we are looking at trying to identify sort of a set of best practices at the UI application end for the web on the one hand, and secondly, for Java native applications at the other. Because we don't think that the notion of tool portability in the broad sense is going to be easily uh, or attractable question to solve anytime soon. But faculty just want to put their stuff on the web. That's the comment you'll get from any of the faculty that you're dealing with, I'm sure. Um, and that means getting alignment amongst the service teams that need to appear, at least, to provide a unified strategy. At MIT, we've been doing a lot of service-level agreement work to define inter-team relationships so that we can do this in a way that tries to, to have some uh, guarantee of accountability and deliverance of service uh, to the faculty. And that's largely been a matter of working with the teams to define what the scope and focus of their work is because the truth is that most people have 60% of the things they claim to be their sole purview is in fact done by at least two or three other teams on campus. So here's the obligatory unintelligible chart I needed to throw up, which describes a, uh, a particular process for uh, taking a, uh, a faculty question for integrating a, or putting material on the web and handing it off to another team, or making a decision to hand it off to another team, and then the process for keeping the two teams in track while the, first, uh, the team of record is managing it, but the work is being done by a second. And we have a whole series of these scenarios that have been worked out amongst various um, support groups, and particularly the Academic Media Production Services, Academic Computing Support Team, and uh, a thing called the Web Communication Service uh, at MIT. And then developing that unified strategy is obviously an attempt to make the complex look simple and logical to the faculty. Again, in our case, in integrating tools, we're collecting content from a number of different sources. On the left side, you have um, a command, which is an, uh, an, a learning management environment that has been in MIT for several years, Sloan Space that the, that the Sloan School uses. Many faculty, as we've, some of you have mentioned, have been using the web for, for quite some time and putting their own courses up in various fashions. All of this is content, um, and that's being harvested by OCW in their content management system for the purposes of publishing it to the external world. That content ultimately is going to reside in various repositories, primarily DSpace, but some of the streaming media stuff will come off the Academic Media Production Services streaming media farm. That content is for and intended for an external audience. Internal to MIT, the teaching environment is intended primarily to be delivered by a Stellar slash Stellar OKI, and it will draw on the same uh, repositories such as DSpace and AMPS and other uh, streaming media services and other, act other locations for the purposes of providing the dynamic interac interactive environment that the teachers, teachers and faculty need for actually working with their students. And so this is sort of the inside MIT look and this is sort of the content coming from various places to get published from OCW. The linkage between OCW and Stellar is, of course, that we want faculty to be able to put things in for their teaching purposes and then painlessly to them extract it out and have it then go through the post-production process to make it ready for the external world in the OCW sense. Um, that there are all of these inputs into the OCW side is largely uh, due to their extraordinarily aggressive publication dates for getting content up. They need content any which way they can get it and so they're drawing it from anywhere they can. 
but our hope is, is that ultimately it will certainly be refreshed from the internal systems on a regular basis and the need to get it from other places will be diminished. So the faculty simply want to put this material up on the web and the technologist listens to it and says, hmm, I need to tell her about all the resources she can use to get help and then begins to start to do this with the um, academic computing faculty liaisons helping with web applications and amp streaming media tools for capture and playing the content on their site, library discipline selectors to help locate and put material on the website, DBRs, distributed uh, resource uh, people working with OCWFLs to help make that static content available and publishable for the external world. And at this point, the faculty members' eyes are glazing and, oops, what happened? The faculty, uh, the faculty member is asking and listening to this in the, uh, in the fashion of the New York Times uh, magazine about dog talking to master or master talking to dog and, she, and hears faculty liaison blah 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 web, amps blah blah web, discipline selectors blah blah web and doesn't understand how all of these different people are supposedly helping them do the one thing that they initially asked for which is getting this stuff off on the web in the first place. And so our challenge at this point is how to do that in a way that is uh, more effective and more logical from their perspective, and we need to do a better job of that. And Brad is going to come up and tell us how to do that. Any questions for me while Brad's coming up? Um, Yes, the question was, do we know how many actual people are providing support uh, given OCW and, and academic computing and all of that? I guess the short answer is, is no, not really. Um, but I know I have a reasonable estimate of um, approximate numbers. Um, as you can imagine, the uh, uh, OCW process is an extraordinarily labor-intensive process uh, because it's largely clearing IP and preparing the material for external view. Um, their target, I believe, is to have something, and maybe Vijay, you can correct me, but I think it's something in the vicinity of 16 or 17 uh, FLs. Right. With an intention of another eight or so in the next 12 months. So um, then there are. I mean, we can't discount the local departments who have hired their own uh, technology support folks. So overall, I would guess that um, there's something in the vicinity of maybe 28 or so to 30 um, support staff in one fashion or another, exclusive of the departmental-owned and funded folks um, working in the various departments. Other questions? Okay. Thank you. In the two minutes between now and lunch, uh, <laughs> okay, I'll see if I can do this some justice. Uh, there's a lot of things to talk about here, and some of them maybe I'll just put into context. I uh, was a faculty member over in the business school, having a nice life until about January a year ago, and moved over to the CIO's office on a uh, 
part-time assignment. And the first question uh, they gave me was, they said, well, we've built this system called OnCourse and for our course management or LMS, and it seems to be going well, but we've always wondered, should we continue to build our own or go buy a commercial one? My uh, background in the business school is information systems with outsourcing and vended products and such. You know, my I came to the question with, what the hell are we doing building our own course management system when there are commercial uh, solutions out there? So I did a lot of study uh, during, uh, I guess, about a year ago thinking about this. And, and uh, for Indiana University and our particular needs, I came to the conclusion uh, we were either very lucky or very smart some years ago, and uh, they say it was smart, perhaps it was lucky, I don't know, but uh, the story I have to tell you about this morning really is where we're going with these, these uh, issues of uh, integration that are our topic today. Speaking just briefly to what's going on, this is the uh, graph across the enterprise, that's the eight campuses of Indiana University, and it's, it's done as a percentage of courses, the, the bottom line, uh, the blue line, percentage of faculty or percentage of students. So as we hit uh, last fall, we're hitting about 75% of our students actively using the course management system. We're saying active, that means they've been into it at least twice. If you go up and use a definition of how many people have been into it 10 times, those numbers fall off about 17%. Uh, so not too big of a drop between those. At the end of fall, uh, you can see here's where the numbers are. I think they hit some pretty great adoption numbers because back in 98, 99, as OnCourse was having its origins, they did make the decision to generate a course automatically from registrar data so faculty didn't have to do anything. And as a matter of fact, the students often nudged them into why isn't the material in OnCourse. And so that, that drove adoption and things were going along pretty well. As I came on board and we started looking at this question about our course management system, or I, I like Dirk's uh, uh, e-learning uh, system, uh, it, it seemed pretty clear to me that the future looked very, very difficult. And I'll have to tell you, Educause this year for me was a very um, uh, peaceful event coming out of the end of it, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. But as we looked at this turbulence and uh, with state budgets and investments that you want to put into big systems like this being relatively flat as a big enterprise system, uh, the question was how are we going to continue dealing with on-course maintenance and, and doing all the things we needed to do when these many, many topics were clearly on the horizon and faculty were pushing the boundaries in every direction. And, and many of our colleagues this morning have addressed a number of these topics. And so it seemed clear to me that uh, continuing with what we had been doing was unlikely uh, to get us where we needed to go. There are also some trends going on at, at IU, and many of these have been documented this morning as well. Single sign-on, and uh, uh, libraries are a great concern to me. We have eight campuses, and with OnCourse, we are quickly building the ninth best digital library at Indiana University. If we don't find a better way to get out of that business, we're growing about a gigabyte a day uh, in, in the file space uh, for that system. Uh, e-portfolio coming along, and this, this top point is really very critical, and that is all IU services, whether it's the financial system, the student system, the Gamma Gamma Move fraternity, web pages, whatever it happens to be, one, one place for students to go, because as we keep growing in number of pages and websites and destinations, things are getting pretty messy pretty fast.
So the questions that uh, Vijay asked me to look at particularly today are topics of integration, interoperability, and I really won't spend too much time on, on uh, boundary issues, though I can speak to them. I also have some other data that's at the end of the slideshow that I won't address about cost and users and stuff like that that's relevant to some of the things that we saw this morning. If you do jump down there and look at cost, be sure to notice that it is activity-based cost. That means charge for the electricity, charged for the network, charge for a percentage of everyone's time, charge for a percentage of the Oracle license. It is everything associated with that. As we look at integration, uh, uh, authentication, authorization, big, big issues, for us, workflow is a big issue. How digital documents, transactions, things move around, whether it's a financial transaction, an HR transaction, a student turning in an assignment to be graded and moved to a, perhaps a teaching assistant, then to a faculty member, and then back to a student, uh, workflow is a big issue. Interoperability is a big issue, particularly with digital libraries, and as the gentleman spoke to this morning, I think it was Ed at Yale, uh, the campus card system, big win for the faculty, getting all those photos populating automatically uh, into the uh, user profiles. The faculty absolutely love that. Now, of course, we don't have one photo ID system when we could have eight at uh, eight, eight campuses. I, I think we actually have it down to four uh, at, at the moment. So where are we going with all this, with the integration interoperability? We could sit here and, and uh, talk about the fun stuff and the, the difficult uh, technology issues of meshing that together. But for me, the, the metaphor of where we'd like to get to is a, a website called Yodely. Uh, anyone here a user of Yodely? Am I the only fool using it? Okay, Yodely has a very simple value proposition. You just tell them your username and password to your brokerage account, your mortgage account, your bank account, savings account, uh, frequent flyer accounts, you know, anything like that. So you tell them your username and password to all of those systems, and when you log in one time to Yodely, all of your data will report to you rather than you going to check to see what was charged on your Amex card yesterday or what various balances and, and things are. And I've been using it for four years now, so no security breaches yet. But uh, what, what I really like about it is when you log in there, everything comes to you. It's not a path to get to many other things. Sure, I can click on something and it will take me into my American Express uh, account or it will take me into my brokerage account, but I really rarely go to those sites anymore because the data that I particularly need automatically comes to me unless I see a question or an issue, and then I go into those systems and have the full services of those systems available. What's interesting to note is this is disparate systems. These were unplanned integrations. There was no master plan that sat down and said, let's get every a financial company and such in the world to work together to bring this great user experience. So uh, when uh, my colleague Barry Walsh, who I'm sure some of you know, we talk about what would be a great user experience to get to with integration, it is an experience that looks like this for a student, for a faculty member, for a staff member across the enterprise. This is where we're at today, and I don't know, perhaps some of you may feel this way too. You've got various uh, silos and huge numbers of systems that have been built over the years, and change the titles if you want, library, student system, the course management system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and they've all put a web front end on them. We're trying to get this single sign-on. Uh, that's going to be a great blessing, and many of you perhaps are ahead of us uh, in doing that. But 
the key point, as I see it, is working to get those systems unbundled into collections of web services. And I've been working with the librarians. I was asked to speak at the Digital Library Federation meeting a year ago, and uh, uh, the title of that talk was Winning the Wrong Game, that the librarians were working very, very hard to build a beautiful front door to all things library when no one honestly gave a damn. Okay, What they really want is in the context of writing a course lesson to be able to pull the library service that they need searching a repository into that moment or the student to be able to click through to a, a need for a library book or digital content at the moment they're working on that homework and uh, though I think they might have taken some degree of offense to it it did seem to get some attention uh, with the library folks as we were talking about it. So I, I think where we're headed here with integration is working on taking a lot of our silos and turning them into services that become unbundled. And where that takes us is, uh, for us, is our portal. There's a number of portal uh, efforts out there and a lot of them do very similar things. A number of us were at a portal meeting about 30 days ago or last week or something. It's hard to recall. Uh, but the, the key point is these individual services that are needed are brought to bear in a single user experience as needed. Your students, they don't care about a system called SIS. For us, SIS is a very distinct thing over here. And library is a very distinct thing. And well, we understand the Indianapolis campus uses, I can't remember, Searcy or some vendor, and the Bloomington campus has some other. Nobody cares. You know, no, nobody cares. And for us to hold these up as barriers to get into a personalized experience is really a disservice to us. So we're working very hard on building unmediated channels so there's not a central authority on publishing. Uh, any group, if it's uh, left-handed Greek chess players, if they want to have a channel and such for their, their content, they don't need permission and blessing and, and lots of and lots of uh, internal control for doing that, but they're able to do this. And we see one start as our means of getting uh, to integration through uh, web services. Um, the second part that we see is very important for integration is in the mobility space. Uh, it's going to be a mess for a number of years. We probably can all agree to that, whether it's going to be uh, through 802.11, that, that's fairly easy and fun and by the way we just did a, a competition with uh, a group of master students from across uh, the university and asked them what should mobile on course look like on handheld devices in all honesty I expected them let's say on course has a hundred features I expected them to take the top 10 or 12 features and implement on a small little screen little handheld device we had the competition two weeks ago and I was absolutely jaw on floor watching them. We gave them real instantiations of OnCourse running in, in a lab. So they built on top of the real thing. I would say they implemented about 60 to 65 percent of the functionality of the course management system and had it live and working on small handheld devices. It was amazing. So we know this is coming and it may also be us uh, uh, dealing with integration where it's not our network, it's not our 802 network, but it's through Verizon or T-Mobile through GPRS or other kinds of uh, uh, systems out there. Well, trying to work with using uh, the silos, if you want to try and go to the, uh, uh, the library 
Are we working here? There we go. Try to go to the library silo or the course management to link to these devices. That's a losing game. The world's changing out there very, very fast. So if we can work with the campus to get everyone to unbundle and link their services into the portal, and then the portal is the place to manage the continuing transition year by year of what's going to be supported, not supported for mobility as that goes forward. That gets us to really, I guess, the heart of our matter of where we're at in thinking about a rich learning environment. And I'll, I'll pare it back down from the whole of the university. Uh, part of the study that we did last, uh, about a year ago, trying to decide our path forward, uh, I didn't know anything about OKI, I hadn't heard about it. Uh, and so uh, we reached the conclusion of where we wanted to go with our course management system. And I started studying what uh, OKI was doing, and I thought, hmm, good fit here. This makes a lot of sense. Got on a plane, went out and talked to Jeff, and found that you know, there was a question of is there any there there at the time, and uh, found that there was there there. And so we decided that that made a lot of sense for us to sign on as a core collaborator and begin working with OKI. And so where we see this happening is we are in the process right now of rewriting our course management system on course, and I'll get to a um, some of the rationale for that in a moment, unbundling it into a collection of services. Uh, we are working very hard with our digital libraries folks trying to charter a path forward with the right kinds of, of connectivity. And as you know, ePortfolio is very much on the horizon. A number of you are probably already involved in that effort as well. We see One Start being the place where these actually come together. We may need to do some pairwise integration between these systems and connectivity. But ultimately, as we move further and further into web services, uh, n-wise connection, pairwise connections between n number of systems becomes unmanageable very, very fast. You've got to have a place where those ad hoc connections can come together. And for us, that is the one-star portal. And uh, again, we're viewing it across the enterprise, financial systems, registrar, everything, uh, connecting to one start uh, uh, portal. I'll hit a few more things and then uh, pause for a breath and uh, uh, any questions you may have. This is what OnCourse looks like. As you can see, it's a big system, big footprint from the number of users. We're hitting about 85,000 unique users uh, each year uh, in the system. Uh, about six million page hits a day uh, right now, so it's getting the hell beat out of it. We had to really ramp up some of the back end of it uh, not very long ago. We are in the process of moving the authentication from ADS to CAS. Uh, we're getting out of the username and password business entirely, so we get to the central authentication service and able to issue shallow credentials to those people outside the institution who need access. Uh, we've automated that procedure. Uh, it is automatically connected to the student information system. Unfortunately, right now we are on a batch system at night, but Dirk, your point's well stated. We've got to get that speeded up. So as we go forward, uh, that, will, that will happen uh, as well. So a couple more slides and then I'll pause. Uh, the Encore strategy, we're in the process of rewriting right now using OKI services, J2EE, and open sourcing it. Uh, OnCourse was originally developed in the Microsoft set of tools. It is our only enterprise service right now that is in Microsoft. Everything else is Java, Linux, uh, uh, Oracle. So just the economics of that don't make a lot of sense for our future. We needed to move it to uh, J2EE. Uh, 
uh, we decided to partner very closely with some institutions that had a similar timeline and objective to things that we'd like to accomplish. Uh, most closely, that is with Michigan and with uh, Stanford and MIT right now. Uh, part of that is working on a project called the, sorry, that blanked out there. It's called the Navigo Project, working on the uh, uh, quizzing and testing instrument, and we're hoping to have that up for the fall. That's our first OKI tool that's uh, heavily under development uh, right now. We're also very interested as we move towards integration, looking at redundancies uh, across services. We've identified seven redundant services in OnCourse that really can be serviced as generic services in the portal. Certainly a file management space is, is one of those. We already have a big one. Everyone's got a 100 meg storage system, but we also have a 100 meg system in Encore. So that uh, comes together. Calendar, everyone knows what a morass that is. Uh, so we don't need an on-course calendar. We want a calendar in one start that you say, I want men's basketball tickets, and subscribe to that, and it populates your calendar there auto automatically. Similarly with uh, threaded discussion, chat, and uh, uh, we believe that there are some efficiencies that can be leveraged as we move forward with this. We know that in our near-term future, on-course has to continue to work as a silo. Someone comes to OnCourse, they never touch the portal, they never touch OneStart. It has to continue to remain an application by itself. But as an unbundled collection of web services, all of its functionality and its integration can continue to operate through the, uh, the portal. So we're building it to work in both of those environments. And uh, if I don't get nailed by Scott Adams for uh, plagiarism here, the short of this is the technology demo, it says the software isn't 100% complete. If it had a user interface, you would see something here and here and sometimes here. And then you'd be saying, I got to get me some of that. Any questions? And so uh, that's where we're at right now in uh, the development of OnCourse Next Generation. Here's a few of the challenges that I see uh, on the horizon. Uh, we're about uh, nine months, uh, maybe about, I guess, nine months from the decision uh, that we made to sign on as a core collaborator, meet with Michigan, find that a lot of our goals are aligned, working closely with them. We joined up with Stanford uh, uh, in uh, uh, about January on the, the project that they have funded around IMS and, and quizzing and testing. And so we're moving forward with that. So let me pause and take a few questions, and then we'll, we'll find find lunch. Yes, Yes. The question is, is it fair to ask what does Indiana expect out of the collaboration with each of the institutions? Uh, at the portal summit that we were both at, you know, the question that I, that I posed to everyone that we kind of all hem-hawed about was, is code mobility important to our future? To me, that is the core issue. If code mobility is important and critical to our economic and innovation future, we're going to all, or many of us, will adopt one set of behaviors. If code mobility really doesn't matter, and we're either going to pay for it or buy it from a vendor, and who cares what the hell somebody else is doing, then we will adopt a different set of behaviors. And we hem-hawed around about that question a whole lot. Nobody really wanted to put a stake in the ground. Everybody wanted to kind of say, yeah, we think it's, it's important. 
For us, the relationship with Michigan uh, in particular, we're both we're very similar institutions in large state schools, multiple campuses, and such. So we believe the economic bet in code mobility between what Michigan is doing and what we're doing is going to work well for both of us. We're taking the lead in writing some things. They're ahead of us in writing some other things. And we've uh, committed to work very hard to ensure that the economic bet is maintained by uh, uh, adhering to some standards for code mobility. Uh, quizzing and testing, huge thing for faculty. They want more and more sophisticated kinds of assessment. The Stanford folks have done a great job with the proposal that they wrote and had funded by Mellon. It, uh, we took the requirements in the Stanford document and a faculty focus group that we had worked about a 20-page document with, and they lined up so beautifully, you would have thought they came from the same interview, practically. So that made all the sense in the world for us to work closely with them. We've thrown our developers uh, at the project, working with Charles Kearns and Lois and their group out at Stanford. Uh, we're in the loop with uh, Craig at MIT uh, on that as well. So there are particular things that we are working with on with each partner. Okay, let's go eat. <laughs>